Please be seated. Well, this morning we are blessed to have Whitney Cunahum with us. Whit has been with us before. He did a men's day, a men's retreat here in the spring. And uh, several on the Education Discipleship Ministries Committee, as well as the vestry, have been uh, praying about and thinking about launching what is called E100, Essential 100 Bible Passages, that is put out by Scripture Union. And we decided to invite Whit back to kick us off, since he is both the author of this Bible reading series, as well as the president and CEO of Scripture Union. I have known of Whit uh, for literally decades, and then finally came to meet him this spring when he came down, and he's such a blessing. He's a gifted teacher and preacher, and we're blessed to have him here today. And uh, just personally, I have, with the Education and Discipleship Ministries Committee, as well as with the vestry, I've already uh, begun the E100 uh, several months ago, and it's been a blessing for me. And so uh, one of the things that I'm going to uh, encourage you, uh, if you haven't already, is to commit to read with us the E100, the Essential 100 Bible passage, Passages, which we are launching today. And that's one of the reasons why Wit is preaching and sharing with us today. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you and thank you for the gift of this time, the privilege of gathering together to worship you. Thank you for all you're doing in our midst here at St. Luke's, and thank you for this commitment that has been made by the Vestry and by the Education Discipleship Ministry Committee, and now many in our parish who have taken up reading the essential 100 Bible passages. We pray that you would continue to pour out your spirit on us, on the ministry of Scripture Union, and right now on wit as he shares with us your word. Lord, pray that we would be blessed and renewed and that you would be glorified. And we offer you this time to your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a real privilege for me to be here this morning and to have this opportunity to uh, participate in your worship service here at St. Luke's. And, um, you know, I, I said this at the morning session, but it's more, or the morning service, but it's more true now. I feel very much at home with you this morning. And um, I feel at home because, as Greg mentioned, I was here this past spring, and uh, I got to speak at, your, at a men's retreat, a men's day, and I got to know a lot of the men of the parish, and that was great. But I also know that a number of you use a Bible reading publication published by Scripture Union called Encounter with God. So I know I'm among sort of real insider friends here. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but we asked Greg to uh, write for us a series on the Gospel of John. And we're going to be publishing that in Encounter with God coming up in the year ahead. So you'll want to look forward to that. But I think the thing that makes me feel most at home here this morning is you're about to begin this journey through the Bible with the Essential 100, the Essential 100 Challenge. It's 50 Old Testament passages, 50 New Testament passages. If you read those Essential 100 passages, you get the big picture of the Bible without getting bogged down. And, uh, you know, 
that program has spread all around the world. Over 2.5 million people have, as we say, taken the challenge, have done the reading schedule that you're about to begin. It's spread into 20 languages all around the world. But the thing that may interest you the most is that at Scripture Union, our staff, when we hear of a church that's begun the process, they've begun reading as a congregation, we pray by name individually for that church. So for me, the great joy is I'm here in a congregation that we've been praying for at Scripture Union for several weeks. Now, this morning I want to begin with a question, and I'll warn you up front. It's kind of a tough question. You're going to have to think about this. So here we go. What's the best way for the church to have a biblical influence in our society? You ever think about that? What's the best way for Christian people, people like us here this morning, to bring the values of God's word into a secular, pluralistic, and sometimes resistant society? Now, I'm convinced that that's one of the most important questions facing the church in America and actually all of the West today. And yet, I believe our influence is gradually eroding because we've lost touch with the Bible and we don't even realize it. Now, you may think it's sort of ironic for me to say something like that, especially here in the United States, because you, you probably know the Bible is the number one best-selling book of all time. It sold more volumes than any other book in history. You know, they don't even list it on the New York Times bestseller list anymore because it would always be number one. It's like the 900-pound gorilla of the publishing world. And because of that, there are more translations of the Bible available today than ever before. So I'm sure you know that for years, for centuries really, we had the beautiful and classic King James Version, the KJV. And then along came the RSV, and then the NIV, and then the TEV, and the CEB, and the NASB, and the TLB, and the BLT, and so many... Tra- I like to read that one at lunch. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of people today that are making the case, you hear it on Christian radio, you hear it around, they're making the case that the Bible is being minimized, that the Bible is being pushed out of the public square. And I think a strong case can be made for that. And yet, when you really think about it, I think there's a stronger case for the reverse, that we're actually saturated with Bibles. Now, if you want to read a Bible, you can go into any public library and you can check out a Bible. Or you can go into Barnes & Noble. There's more Bibles in a Barnes & Noble than there are in the average Christian bookstore. If you want to read a Bible, you can go online. You can download it to your smartphone. You can get every translation of the Bible free wherever you go. So the issue in the United States is not the availability of Bibles. It's our engagement with the Bible. 93% of American households have one. Many have many more Bibles. And that only 20% will ever read through the world's greatest book even once in their lifetime. Now, at Scripture Union, I keep track of a lot of Bible reading statistics. And if you want to really get bored, we'll do a little seminar on Bible reading statistics. But for this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to 
save us a lot of time. I'm going to boil it down. When you look at all the stats on Bible reading in America, it all boils down to this. Bible sales keep going up, up, up. But Bible reading keeps going down, down, down. And that's why I believe that if Christians ever hope to have a biblical influence in society, in fact, if we ever hope to have a church that's vital and alive and growing, then it's going to take what I call a Bible reading revival. And it'll need to begin in the church. Now that raises another question. And it's a, t- it's a tougher question, shorter. And the question is how? How would something like Bible reading revival happen? How do we get from where we are to move in that direction? And to answer that question, I want to look at our Old Testament lesson, what we just heard read a few minutes ago. And you may want to get your service leaflet and follow along because I'm going to make some comments about that uh, passage. It's, a, it's a, a, a passage where God's people had lost touch with God's word. And the reason why I think this is so significant is because I think in this passage are some clues that will help us answer this tough question about having a biblical influence today. So that's what we want to do. Now, I know that uh, probably you did not wake up this morning and say, I'm going to read the book of Second Chronicles before I even have my coffee. You know, that's probably not what everybody did this morning. So what I'm going to do is give you some quick context for this passage. The books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles, it's two books, tells the history of Israel. That's what they're about. And 2nd Chronicles, this book, takes us from the high point in Israel's history, the reign of King Solomon. He was the wisest, wealthiest king they ever had, and takes it through to the low point, the fall of Jerusalem. And along the way, we're introduced to a whole number of different kings. Some were good guys, some were bad guys. And the guy that we're reading about, the king that we're reading about in this passage in our Old Testament lesson is named Josiah. And he was one of the good guys. It says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so what's happening is he's instituted some reforms in Israel. He's trying to reform the worship nationwide, and in particular, what they're doing in this passage is they're renovating the temple. Okay, the temple has fallen into disrepair, and they're fixing it up. That's the background to this passage. And I want to start, as they, as they do this uh, renovation, they make an amazing discovery, and I want to start, just look at that first verse in the reading with me. It says, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, The priest Hilkiah found a book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Now let's stop there. In that short verse, there is both good news and bad news. The good news is that religious activity is on the rise. That's a good thing. You know, everybody in the parish is involved in fixing up the church. And they're coming in on Tuesday and they're coming in on Thursday. They're all involved in in this church fix-up campaign. And if you read earlier in the chapter, it's not in this reading, but it says in verse 12, they did the work faithfully. So this wasn't just sort of a a photo op or a, you know, give back Sunday or something like that. They were really into it. Their hearts really meant it. That's good news. But there's bad news. Did you pick it up right in that verse that that I just read? They had lost 
the Bible. They had lost the book of the law. That's what they found as they're renovating the temple. And what I want to know is why didn't somebody realize that those pew Bibles were missing in the first place? (laughs) And think about Hilkiah. He's like the rector of this thing, the senior pastor. Okay, he's the the high priest. If anyone should have known that those Bibles were missing, it's Hilkiah. But the word that I use to describe him is distracted. He was so busy doing God's work that he had forgotten about God's word. And the other guy that we read about, his name was Shaphan. He was like the executive pastor, the associate pastor. You know, he was trying to pay all the workers and keep everything going. Hilkiah gives him the book of the law. Look in verse 18. It says, the secretary Shaphan informed the king, the priest Hilkiah has given me a book. Shaphan read from it aloud to the king. What I find interesting about that is the way he describes what they've discovered. So Shaphan has it, and he doesn't doesn't go to the king and say, here, here's the book of the law. Here's the book of Moses. Here's the book of the covenant. No, what does it say? He says, Hilkiah has given me a book. It was just another book. And the word I use to describe him is indifferent. Now let me hit the pause button here for a minute. And let me just say, I didn't come here all the way from Philadelphia to lay a big guilt trip on you about Bible reading, okay? My message this morning is, you're all, you know, like Hilkiah and you're distracted and you're all like Shaphan and you're indifferent, so just, you know, amen, go home. (laughs) That's not my message this morning. You see, it's the enemy that wants to turn Bible reading into a guilt-driven chore. It's the enemy that wants to turn your times in God's Word into making you feel like you're punching the clock for God or else he's going to get mad at you if you miss. But it's our Heavenly Father, the waiting Father, who longs to meet with us in his Word. You know, the truth is, we all get behind in Bible reading. We, we all, none of us keeps up with it perfectly. You know, my role is in a ministry encouraging people to read the Bible, and I get off track. I fall behind. I get distracted and indifferent. And when that happens to me, I like to remember what my own dad said to me years ago. He said, when you fall behind on your Bible reading, he said, don't try to make it up. Don't feel guilty. He said, just start today and go forward. Start today and go forward. And and when I've I've thought about that over the years, and I've thought, you know what, that's good advice, not just for Bible reading, but for all of the Christian life. Start today and go forward. Well, there's another response that I, in this passage that I think is interesting, and that's how the king responded. His response was very personal. Did you notice that? He tore his robes. Did you see that? And he also inquired of the Lord. In those days, you know, what what he realized is that in this word, God was speaking to him, and it required a response. And so what he did was he got a prophet. That's what the kings would do. They got a prophet to inquire on his behalf to say, what, what is God saying to us? And what's really fascinating about this passage, if you read the whole chapter, we just have a section of it here, but if you read the whole chapter, in this case, he got a prophetess, a woman. Her name is a female prophet. Her name is Huldah. 
Sounds like one of my Scandinavian relatives, okay? But he asked her to inquire of the Lord on his behalf. And this is the message that comes back from God through this prophetess. And I'm going to read it for you. It's not in the reading. It's in the rest of the chapter. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now let me ask you, when you read the Bible, when you pray, isn't it the longing of your heart to have that same sense, that sense that God has heard you, that God has been there with you, that it's not just a meaningless exercise. Well, that can be your experience if you come to God's word in the way that Josiah did, with a humble heart and a responsive heart. That's what pleases God. Well, there's one more part of this passage that I think is really exciting. And it is, um, we see a corporate response to this discovery. So the two religious officials, Hokiah and Shaphan, they, they responded their way and the king responded in a personal way. But did you get at the end, they respond as a group to what they've discovered. And I think is at this point, beginning in verse 29, that we, dis- that we see uh, the beginnings of this answer to the question that we're asking. And I'm going to read it again because I think it's so significant. Pick it up with me in verse 29. Then the king sent word and gathered together all the elders of Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites and all the people, both great and small. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, keeping his commandments, his decrees and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that had been written in this book. Then he made all those who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to pledge themselves to it. Now what I see in that passage, that part of the passage, is a picture of what I call Bible reading revival. Bible reading revival. And if you look at this, there are two components to Bible reading revival. The first component that we see here is a community-wide reading of Scripture. And did you see that from the least to the greatest, everyone was involved in reading the word. So it wasn't just the king. It wasn't just the clergy. It wasn't just the vestry or the spiritual life committee or the encounter with God readers. It was everyone. They were all involved in reading God's word together. That's the first component of Bible reading revival. And the second component that we see here is a community-wide renewing of their commitment to obey it. Did you see what the king says? He says, we're going to follow this with all our heart and all our souls. And all the people said, we're in. Amen. Yeah, we're going to do it too. That's the second component, the community-wide commitment to live it out. In fact, that's what, we, that's what Jesus underscored in our gospel lesson today. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. It's the hearing or the reading and the acting. You put those two together, those are the two components of Bible reading revival. Now, here's where it gets really exciting, at least for me. This isn't a one-time thing in Scripture. 
this pattern that we see in this obscure Old Testament lesson is actually a theme that runs cover to cover through the scriptures. So if we had time, we could look at Deuteronomy 31, where Moses, he's all strong and righteous, Charlton Heston, you know, coming down with the tablets off the mountain. What does he do? He gets everybody together. In that text, it says the men, the women, and the children, and they read the whole book of the law together, and they commit themselves to do it. Bible reading revival. Or Joshua, when he takes the people into the promised land, they finally make it. What does he do? He gets everybody together, everybody. They read the whole book of the law, and they commit themselves to do it. Bible reading revival in the promised land. And then after the time of Josiah, we're reading about Josiah here, but remember the book of Nehemiah after the fall of Jerusalem, after they came back, after they rebuilt the temp- I mean the wall? What happens? Most people don't read to the end of the book. What they did was they built a platform, and Ezra the priest stood on the platform. It says they gathered as one man in the public square. They read the whole book of the law, and they committed themselves to do it. Bible reading revival. It's a theme that runs through the whole scriptures. And when you put those two things together, the community-wide reading of scripture and a community-wide commitment to obey it, Real spiritual power breaks out. And you know, that's why I'm so excited about what you're about to do here at St. Luke's. Because in the E100, you'll be reading through God's word together, and I trust it will be combined with a commitment to do your best to live it out. I'm praying that Bible reading revival breaks out right here. And you know, I'm going to push this a little bit further this morning because I know this is a congregation where God's word is faithfully and skillfully preached and where God's word is already held in high regard. So I know there are many here in this congregation who are concerned, who grieve for the direction of the church. That perhaps it's moving away from its historic Christian biblical base. And it's not just in the Episcopal or Anglican tradition. It's the same in the Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church. And you name it, it's happening all over. And the question is, what do we do about it? What's the solution? Well, I would say in part, we're going to need courageous leaders who stand up and contend for truth as you have here in the Diocese of South Carolina. But it's going to take more. I say that sea change will come to the church when Bible reading revival breaks out at a pew level. That's when the renewal will really come. You see, what we're talking about this morning, what we're thinking about in this passage, is not just the renewal of a personal spiritual discipline Bible reading. Yes, that is what we're talking about in part. But it's far more than that because when God's people read God's word as a community and as a community commit themselves to live it out, That leads to the renewal of the church itself. That's what we're talking about this morning. Now, at this point, there might be someone here thinking someone like this. I don't want to put words in your mouth or your mind, but uh, maybe somebody's thinking, oh, well, amen for Bible reading revival. Come on, man. Who's going to disagree with you on that one? You know, it's like, uh, but things are different today. You know, I mean, uh, it's like there's no king around. He can't order us to all read the whole Bible. We can't do that. And not only that, 
like you said, the, it's a secular world. It's a pluralistic society. It's kind of confusing. And not only that, my world, my life is confusing. You know, I got, I got bills to pay. I'm, I'm worried about my health. I'm concerned about my kids. What about retirement? There's all these issues. And, you know, I try to read the Bible. I know I'm supposed to do it, but I just can't keep up with it. And I know people tell you that it's, you know, you ought to do it and it's really important. But for me, it's sort of dry and boring. I can't keep up with it. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, I know I ought to, but, oh, man, it's sort of complicated. Well, I think the reason why a lot of people struggle with Bible reading is because they don't know the secret that makes the Bible come alive. And I discovered this secret. Actually, I've discovered it many times over in my life. But the first time I discovered it was back in 1974. And um, I, I was uh, in college. I wasn't married yet. And I got a job working at a summer camp in Maryland. <clears throat> and um, the, the thing about this job is my, my job was the maintenance man. And it was a girls' camp. Okay, so... Uh, 200 girls a week were coming through this camp, you know, and I'm the maintenance man here. And, and uh, <clears throat> I've told my wife since, you know, I said, you know, and she knows this, uh, I'm a terrible handyman. I don't know why they hired me. I guess I was just good with people. And she said, what do you mean by that? And I said, um, I don't mean nothing. I don't mean anything by that. <laughs> anyway, so during that summer, I started getting letters from a girl in New York. And for reasons that I need to explain, I kept those letters a secret. Now, the other part of my job that summer was I supervised some kitchen boys. It was four teenage boys, and their job was to wash the dishes. I mean, this is a girls' camp, okay? So their attitude was, you know, if there's dirty work to be done, duh, get some boys to do it, you know? And, and my job was to supervise these boys and to keep them focused all summer long on washing dishes and studying the Bible with me, okay? That was my job. And don't think about the girls. Well, I wasn't very successful in that part of my job. In fact, I would tell the guys, you know, uh, you know, in your free time, guys, you know, don't think about the girls. You know, go hiking, go swimming, get some fresh air, you know, whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> Those guys were girl crazy. They were, we, our cabin was segregated off from the girls, and they had weightlifting equipment set up in the cabin. And all they would do is they'd, come, they'd wash the dishes, and they'd come back, and they would lift weights over and over again, mostly just curls, you know, mostly just curls, because they had figured out what women want. Okay, 14-year-old teenage boys, they knew exactly what women want, right? Women want a man with brains, you know, real brains. <laughs> they had figured it out. Well, you see, that's the reason I kept the letters I was getting a secret. Because I knew that if I let the boys know that I got letters from a girl in New York, they would say, see, you tell us not to be so girl crazy, but look at you. And the truth is, I loved getting those letters. I loved it when the envelope was fat. Have you ever gotten an envelope from somebody, a letter from somebody you care about? Uh, in the old days, they had letters. It wasn't an email. You could write more than 140 characters. I know it sounds weird. But anyways, I loved it when the envelope was fat. 
because it meant she had a lot to say to me. And I would go off in secret, and I loved to read what she wrote to me. In fact, I just loved the way she wrote. I just, she had this small, careful handwriting. I just loved to look at it. And I loved to read about what she was doing at the camp where she was working in New York. And I think back on those letters, and I wish I had saved them. I didn't. I don't know where they are. And I ask myself, what is it that made those letters so exciting to me? You know, was it the length of the letter or the style of the writing or, you know, what they were all about? All that was, all that was part of it. But the thing that made the letters come alive was that somewhere far, far away was a beautiful girl with long brown hair who loved a tall, lanky boy like me. What made the letters come alive was the person on the other end. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that's the secret that makes the Bible come alive. Because you can read the Bible as you go through the E100. You can read it to get more Bible knowledge in. You can read it to get more biblical truth. You can read it, you know, to stop biblical illiteracy in all of America if you want. And those are all good things. But most of all, we read God's word to get to know the God of the universe, the God who's not so very far, far away, the God who made you, the God who knows you, the God who loves you more than you could ever think or imagine. The secret that makes the Bible come alive is to read it relationally, not just informationally. Ultimately, reading God's word is a meeting experience, meeting with God, not just a reading experience. And oh, by the way, that mystery girl in New York, the one that was writing me the letters, three years after that summer, we were married, and this past June, we celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary. <clears throat> you know, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who was martyred by the Nazis for his faith. He used to tell his uh, students in the underground seminary, he'd say, Think of the Bible as God's love letter written specifically to you. That's the Bible reading secret. And that brings us back to where we started, to that question, what's the best way for the church to have a biblical influence in society? Well, I know that some say the answer is to fight the battle for the Bible against a skeptical and resistant world. And maybe that's the way to go. But I would say that a more excellent way is for Christians to come alive to their own book, God's holy word. Then people won't be perceiving us as jamming God's word down their throats. Instead, our message, our strategy for influencing the world will be come and join us. Come and join us in meeting the God of the universe in his word every day. You want to know something? That's what people are truly, truly hungry for. And I want to close with a phrase. It's short. You're going to be able to remember this. I actually learned it from my colleagues in Scripture Union. Scripture Union is in 130 countries around the world, and I've learned so much from them. In fact, I shared it at the men's retreat, but I think it captures what I've been trying to say this morning, and it goes like this. Pray it in, live it out. 
pray it in, live it out. In other words, prayerfully read God's word every day if you can, but don't feel guilty if you can't. You know, start today and go forward. Pray it in and then live it out. In other words, apply, obey, or as Jesus said, act on these words. Pray it in, live it out. I wonder if you would do something with me as we close. Would you say that phrase together out loud with me? Will you do that? You ready? Pray it in, live it out. That's the starting point for Bible reading revival. Amen.